Good morning. Let's just bow our heads for a brief word of prayer here. Dear Heavenly Father, we would just simply ask this morning that uh, the very author of the Word would be kind to give each one of us a little nugget of truth that would encourage our hearts today, that would draw our minds into the Lord Jesus Christ. We would be brave enough to ask again for a fresh revelation and a manifestation of the Lord Jesus, that our lives might be changed, that our faith might be placed in Him, that our love might be exemplified so fully because of the strength which He provides, because of our love for Him as well. We just entrust this time together as we look at Thyself, as we view again the person of the Lord. We pray that You will show Yourself to us. Introduce Yourself to us in fresh ways today, that we might fall deeper in love with Thee. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Do any of you all know the chorus, More and More? When Dave and Tom started playing yesterday, the... uh, what do you call it? The medley, I guess you'd say. Evidently, in different parts of the country, you sing different songs in that medley. And I started out at one of the breaks with the wrong song. And it was this song, More and More. Mr. McDonald, I think, taught it to us, if I remember correctly, a lot of years ago, probably two or three decades ago. More and more I want to magnify his name. More and more I want to spread abroad his fame. Do you all know that? No. Wow, if I had a good voice, I'd try to teach it back to you. I mean, this is where it came from. This is the source. (laughs) How about if we work on it a little bit later and we'll give it a good shot? But it goes something like this, if I can remember it. More and more I want to magnify his name. More and more I want to spread abroad his fame. More and more, oh, make my life a living flame. Melt my heart, precious Lord, more and more. Does that bring any recognition at all? All right, well, let's just try it. I know there's a couple of us here that know it. Bill will help me out a little bit. I'm not a great singer, but we'll give it a good go and and see if we can come through it. Are you ready? More and more, I want to magnify His name. More and more, I want to spread abroad His fame. More and more, Oh, make my life a living flame. Melt my heart, precious Lord, more and more. Well, very nice. Maybe we'll try it again another time. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. We have been taking some time to look at the person of the Lord as He gives us an autobiography of Himself in a sense, as He introduces Himself to us. Our desire as we begin yesterday, as we quoted that verse from Psalm 34, was to magnify the Lord together, to exalt His name together, to allow Him to loom larger in our eyes. And we begin with this phrase, in the beginning God created. This God who, as Jabe said this morning, brought those things which we see out of those things which are not seen. Who brought everything out of nothing with His Word. The great God and Creator, this Elohim, the mighty God of creation. We went on to some of the next times where we find this same name of the Lord used as He says, Hello, my name is this. And we found out that not only is He the God of infinite might and power, but He is the God of intimacy and to such an extent that He is going to show His commitment 
and His faithfulness to mankind. He did so to Noah. He did so to Moses. He did so to Abraham, that great man of faith, as we read different Scriptures. And He became also to us that God who was faithful to us, who was committed to us, this Elohim. He was the powerful God of creation, the God of commitment, infinitely powerful, but absolutely faithful. Now, as we begin to step back and say, why did the Lord introduce Himself to us firstly in this way? Different verses may come to mind. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. One of God's favorite verses in Scripture, which He repeats four times over, is this, that the just shall live by faith. As Jabe has been so well sharing for us, it is the basis of our life. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing the Word of God. And we find that He's a God that can be trusted. He's a God that's first faithful to us. He's a God that can do anything. How could we help but trust Him? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we begin to gain any wisdom at all, that which is important to the Lord, we're going to have to have that sense of awe, of reverence, that's going to inspire our life. And so the Lord is going to be raised up in our estimate as the great Creator, the infinitely powerful God, the God of absolute faithfulness unto each one of us. And so we have this word Elohim, this name Elohim, this name which God gave Himself that He might begin to share with us what He is like. Now, just by way of concluding that in a bit before we move on to another introduction, I'd like you to turn with me to the New Testament. If the Lord Jesus is the Jehovah of the Old Testament, He is also the Elohim of the Old Testament. And in First Peter chapter 4, we're going to read something about His faithfulness and something about His creatorial power. It is many times at the low times in our life that we seek to find the Lord as the one who's faithful to us, who's committed to us, who can help us, who is there to sustain us. And sometimes when the roof caves in in our life, we say, where's the Lord? Listen to these verses in First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Verse 16, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, do you mean Christians suffer? And the Holy Spirit here says, If any man suffer as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And notice who we turn to now in verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. When the hardships come, when the times get hard, We can look back to the very first way in which we knew the Lord, and it's this. He's the Creator, the mighty God of all things. And He's faithful to us. Come what may, as unto a faithful Creator, says the Word. 
So notice again, we have this reverence for His power established. We have this appreciation for His faithfulness to us in any situation, infinite and unqualified in power, and absolute in faithfulness. Now this Lord Jesus in the New Testament, we don't have to read very long as Jabe made mention of the biographies at the beginning. We come to the fourth biography of the Lord Jesus at the very commencement of it, and we find the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in fact the Creator. Listen to Isaiah chapter 9. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. This is our Lord Jesus. The verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, For all the promises of God in Him are yea, and in Him, Amen. The Lord Jesus is the guarantee of any promise that's ever been given. One of the most heart-rending, I believe, references in the New Testament that draws back to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Elohim, and yet as the Son, separate from God in some sense, from the Father, from the Spirit, in that differentiation that we learn about in that foregleam of Trinity in Genesis 1, we find the Lord Jesus, much like that Peter passage, at His moment of infinite trial, when by Himself He is going to pay for our sins. And his cry from his lip is this, unto that God in heaven is this. Listen carefully for the words that are used. And Scripture is going to render them to us lest we forget them. He says this, Eloi, or El, or Eli, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, he says, which is interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. And in that moment of greatest weakness, he says, my strength, my power, my God. This is El, is it not? The one who is absolute and infinite and unqualified in power. And in that moment of weakness, he cries out, my God, my strength. And then in that next phrase, to give us an idea of what he went through on our behalf, he says, why hast thou the absolutely faithful God who cannot ever fail with anything that He's ever given, any commitment, any promise that He's ever given. He cannot fail. And He says, Why hast Thou forsaken Me? And it was so that we might not be forsaken. And in that orphaned cry, we get again a a, a small picture of what it was like for the Lord Jesus to bear our sins on Calvary's cross. And so we have this God presented before our attention in the Old Testament. This God of infinite power, absolute faithfulness. And we find that, yes, He is the Elohim of the New Testament and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. But it was the Lord Jesus in whom all the promises of God are yes and guaranteed because He was willing to be separate from that wonderful God on our behalf. Now let's move on a bit as we go in the Old Testament to some further 
names of the Lord. These names that carry on with the same concept. This concept of the mighty God. This concept of Elohim. And the very next one that we come to is in Genesis chapter 14. It's a familiar passage we trust. And the Lord is going to introduce Himself in a wonderful way in this case. And we're going to take the time as we should to read a bit of the Scripture and to set some of the background. Let me just state, first of all, that in the span now of about seven chapters, in the span of one lifetime, this man Abraham, who is the father of faith, This man Abraham, who so often exemplified faith, who, as we heard this morning, his works displayed his faith, his love displayed his faith. In Genesis chapter 22, that exact thing is rendered when he is willing to give his own son, Isaac, unto the Lord. The Lord is evidence that he has Abraham's faith because he does so, and by those works, he says he's justified. But in the span of this life, three times directly to Abraham, One more time to a different member of his entourage. Abraham, this man of faith, this friend of God, is given these wonderful displays of who the person of God is. And here's the first one that we come to, chapter 14. And let's begin reading in verse 1. We have a hard time pronouncing some of these names, but it goes like this. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war. And it goes on to list with these other kings. Look then in verse 9. And Keterleomer, the king of Elam, with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings with five. The king of Sodom and these others that came out to these other great kings of the nations. I love that name, title king of nations. This isn't tinker toy stuff here. These are nations fighting against nations. And these four kings had been under tribute. And they thought they'd go ahead and revolt just a bit. So these men, I mean these are great names aren't they for kings. Keterleomer, there's a big name. Title king of nations. There's quite a title to hold. And they go to battle. And in this battle, these five kings, they go ahead and destroy the others. They take their women, they take their men, they take their goods. And the news comes to this man Abraham, this man of faith. You think to yourself, what good is it going to be that a single man gets the news? In verse 12, And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped. And told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Now notice carefully, he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them into Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also he brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. This is a Gideon-like circumstance. Here you have on one side, on one side, title king of nations and his armies, whatever they were, 
four other kings in addition to that. And now we have this man, his servant, so they don't even have blood relatives out there. What, you know, why are they going out to fight? Well, they certainly loved Abraham. They were willing to serve him. But 318, this little number 300 comes to mind. The night comes to mind. The, the vastness of one army against the smallness of the other. It's a Gideon type experience. I think these are one of the stories that we're going to be excitedly listening to in glory that are a bit veiled in our scripture but one day are going to come to light. And this man, Abram, with 318 men by night, put to flight these five armies. And they bring back the goods. They bring back Lot also. Verse 17. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Keterlaomer. Nice way to put the battle being won. And of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And now we're introduced to a certain priest, a certain king. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the most high God. And here's our name. And he blessed him, it says. And he said, blessed be Abram of the most high God possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which, now here's the secret of it all, isn't it? Many times we read about the acts of the mighty men of David. We read about the acts of Gideon. We're always given that addendum, which is not so much so, which is the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And here we have the phrase, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God. There it is again. The Most High God. This is this name, El Elyon. Now I say it in that way because El is the word for mighty, is the name for mighty and powerful. But then it's repeated again, you notice, in that next word, El, El, Yon. It's a superlative in this sense. Now, it carries as we read throughout Scripture. We find this word. All you have to do is pull out your Strong's Concordance or your computer or something like that. This word, El, Yon, is rendered in many places high. It has to do with that which is higher than the rest. You'll find springs that are higher, people that are higher than others. But... You find that name again being repeated in that second word, LL. It's a superlative. It's God, God. It's the God of gods, the, the King of kings. It's this idea that if you had an estimate of God before that was high, infinite in power, absolute in faithfulness, then the writer comes back to us and he says, that's not good enough. You're not quite there yet. There's the superlative, too, that if he is the highest, he's the highest of the highest. If he's the most mighty, he's the mightiest of the mighty. If he's the greatest, he's the greatest of the greatest. If he's the most faithful, he's the most faithful of all. And he continues to try to draw us higher and higher yet. And it's rendered here, the most high God, possessor of heaven and of the earth. What a story. Now, Abram goes on down to learn something else. 
Abram says to the king of Sodom, I've lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say that I have made Abram rich. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram, after having won the battle, all of these things his by right, he had a vast entourage, as Jabe made mention of. If he had 300 servants that were just there suited for war, imagine how many servants he actually had. And feeding them every day. You had need of goods and food and things like that. But he says, you know something, as I'm learning something about the Lord, O king of Sodom, I won't take one shoe latchet. It's not you that would ever make me infinitely wealthy. It's the Lord. And it's even beyond that. It's not things so much. Though the Lord gives us all things to appreciate. Though the kingdom is ours, little children. Though having not spared His Son, how shall He not also with us, with Him also freely give us all things? The greatness of it all is that we possess the possessor of all of those things. And Abraham learns that his reward fully and finally was the Lord Himself, the possessor of the heavens and of the earth, the great God, the Most High God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, we sometimes sing. The wealth in every mine. How does the next phrase go? Someone help me. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills. The wealth, the sun and stars that shine. Wonderful riches, more than tongue can tell. He is my father, and so they're mine as well. Thank you for the help. He is my father, so they're mine as well. And this was what Abram was going to learn. This is one of the reasons that Abram was the faithful one, the father of those that are faithful, because he knew God in this respect. It becomes very practical in our own lives, doesn't it? Here's a man who paid some tithes, who paid something to someone else. Well, what he paid them from wasn't his anyway. And when it comes to the 15th of our favorite month in this country anyway, and we have to pay our taxes, and the Lord says, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, our mind can go back to something like this. Well, the king of Sodom, I suppose he's a bit like Caesar and is a bit like our own government in that way too. They're not ours anyway. They're the Lord's. And if the Lord wants to see us, Go ahead and give a little bit of what's his to someone that he says, well, Caesar, whoever he may be, if that's his, you go ahead and give it because the Lord decided to do it. It's his anyway. We hold loosely to things, don't we? Because ultimately we hold everything simply because we hold the Lord. The word of Scripture is this, that I am my beloved's. That's first. And my beloved is mine. And it goes along with that story that James told us just a few moments ago that we never could have thought of that kind of thing. Only the infinite God could have given us the heavens and then given us His Son also. Placed us in relationship. Made us a part of the family of the Lord. Abraham was getting an idea of what this was like. 
We're going to come back to this hopefully in just a few minutes. We don't have very many more left to take a bit more look at it in detail. But let's very quickly look at a couple of other places where this name is used. It's not used a lot in the Old Testament. And so let's look at the very next one that we find it in our Old Testament. Numbers chapter 24. The writer of Scripture is going to use it for us in this instance. He's going to bring it back to our attention now as we read something about this man by the name of Balaam. Numbers chapter 24. And we read in verse 16. He hath said, which heard the words of God, and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. Now, you know the story well enough. This is the exact verse where it's rendered, the same name, the Most High. You know the story well enough to remember what this man Balaam was like. He was prostituting the Lord in a relationship with the Lord for a little bit of gold. And the New Testament is not easy on this man. And here's we have a man, here now we have a man, unlike Abraham, who is turning his back on the possessor of the heavens and the earth, and instead he's hewing out for himself cisterns, broken cisterns, trying to gain somehow a few dollars. And we say, how can that possibly be? How can we imagine that, this man Balaam? A man who's now turning his back upon the infinite God. Let's look then at the next time that it's rendered to us very quickly. In Deuteronomy chapter 37, Deuteronomy chapter 32. We're going to find out a bit of the detail concerning this man, this God who possesses heavens and earth. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 7 and 8. It's in the context of Moses here at the end of his life. And he says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask thy father and he will show thee, thy elders and they will tell thee, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the law of his inheritance. It's only the Lord that could give these things out. It's only the Lord that could divide the earth and divide the nations. They're all His. We find then, moving here very quickly in the book of Daniel, and we may take the time just to read a couple of scriptures in Daniel, we find a king, not unlike Title, the king of nations, not unlike Keterleomer, not unlike Balaam, who is now going to be confronted with the possessor of the heavens and the earth. It's in this book of Daniel, and if you'd like to look further into this name, you might recollect that this name is mentioned more in this book than in any other book in the Old Testament, this El Elyon, this possessor of heavens and earth, this great God. And we find this man Nebuchadnezzar coming, taking the Jews, bringing them back to his own country. This man Daniel is a young man being taken as well. And in his first dream, in chapter 2 and verse 37, Daniel begins to interpret it. 
And he says to this King Nebuchadnezzar, Thou, O king, art king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom. We already knew that, didn't we? We know who it is that disseminates, who possesses the kingdoms and the, and the, the world itself. The God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory, he says. And Daniel begins to display before this man who this king is in heaven, who this God is in heaven. We remember that this great king on the earth, this Nebuchadnezzar, says, well, I'm going to set up a statue all of gold. And the Lord reminds him that really he isn't all of gold. There's a problem down beneath somewhere. There's some feet that are of clay and iron mixed together. And he's not going to stand. Now, a few of God's men who had been taken decide to stand. And in the light of this great decree of this earthly king... They stand for the living God instead, and they're cast into a fiery furnace. And as we read the story, we recollect that there are four men in that furnace, and not three. And we know very well that one of those men is a theophany, is a pre-incarnate appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And Nebuchadnezzar himself, when he comes to the fiery furnace, he uses this name, the Most High God, and he releases Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the name of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. But he doesn't have it yet. And he's going to end up crawling on his hands and knees for years to recognize, in fact, it's not him, Nebuchadnezzar, but it's the God of glory, the Most High God, that possesses the heavens and the earth. And in chapter 5, if I can find the verses very quickly here, we read in verse 21 something of which Nebuchadnezzar learned. Chapter 5, he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts. His dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointeth it over whomsoever he will. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, he says. But thou hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. And in this Old Testament, as we're brought to the heights, the superlatives of the greatness of God, And we see men like Balaam, men like Belshazzar, men like Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of their life, standing up on their hind feet like little, I don't know what they are, little somethings in the face of the Almighty God. And we're able to stand back and see the story. We say, how could we ever stand up in the face of the Lord, but rather fall at His feet in worship? Poor Judas in the New Testament. Here's Judas who faced the same El Elyon, the Most High God. Here's Judas who turned his back, just like Balaam did in the Old Testament. Oh, he knew the worth of earthly things, didn't he? Scripture is very vivid in that sense. He knew the exact weight of the ointment. He knew the exact amount that that ointment was worth. But he turned his back volitionally on the God who owned it all, who was infinite. We say, how could it be? 
And then we begin to recognize in our own lives, in our own faithlessness, and how often we don't trust the Lord. And how often we go after earthly gain as opposed to following on to know the Lord who is the Most High God, the Possessor of the heavens and the earth. Now, we have about five minutes. And I'd like us to just take note of one or two things as we come to the New Testament. Let's turn there in Mark chapter 4. You see, this Lord Jesus that we know as our personal Lord and Savior is also the El Elyon of the Old Testament. We don't have time to turn to other passages that would bear the same fact in mind. At the end of Mark chapter 4, we read a little story. We don't have much time to read it, but there were some ships after they had passed away in verse 36 from a multitude. They took him even as he was in the ship. Notice there were also other with him little ships. Have you ever noticed that before? In the midst of this story, other little ships also. There arose a great storm. The word in the original is mega. And you know what that means, right? Something that's mega. There was a mega storm, it says, of wind. And we heard a bit about that last night. A storm like they'd never seen before, perhaps. The waves beat into the ship so that, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and he rebuked the wind. And he said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And here's what we cannot figure out. Ask Kirk sometime. He's a physicist. When the wind ceases, the waves do not. But this says in this case, and there was a mega. Here's the same word again. There was an absolute, a mega, an immense calm immediately. And he said unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they, here's our word again, mega feared him. They reverenced him greatly. They feared him exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And in this short chapter 4 and short chapter 5, we begin to see that this Jesus is the most high God. Look at verse 7 of the next chapter. He comes to this place of the gatherings, this wicked man, filled with spirits. Legion is his name. And this man himself has to utter, Thou art the Son of the Most High God. In this same chapter, Jairus comes up to the Lord. His daughter is dead. And the Most High God steps into her room and says, Talitha Kumai, little girl, I say unto you, arise. This is the Most High God whom we serve. The Lord Jesus Christ. And if we could only get an idea of the immensity and of His faithfulness and of His power and of His intimacy with us, we would be different people, wouldn't we? We would be better gospelers. We would be better testimonies for the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But in conclusion, as we go back to our story in Genesis chapter 14, let's remember that the Lord has given us a remembrance lest we forget El Elyon. There was a priest there that appeared, a king also, 
Jerusalem's first sovereign, and he comes out with two emblems, and you know what they are. Not the first time that we've met them. As we read through our Bible, because we're trying to learn something about the Lord, we would have found in chapter 3, the very first mention ever, of this emblem called bread. What is the context of it? Genesis chapter 3. In the sweat of thy face, thou shalt eat bread. It's in the context of the curse, is it not? The first time we ever read about bread in Scripture. The first time that we ever read about wine in all of Scripture is in the context of Noah. Noah began to be a husbandman. And he drank wine. And his son came in and uncovered his nakedness and what was pronounced? A curse. A curse. And the first time we ever see the bread and we ever see the wine, it's in the context in our Bible of the curse. But you see, things have now changed in chapter 14 because we find a priest of the Most High God. This time the emblems are not separate. This time the emblems are brought together. And this time, this priest blesses Abram in the name of the Most High God. And he blesses the Most High God. It's still priestly ministry today to handle the bread and to handle the wine And to allow them to bring our mind back to this, if nothing else, that the Lord our God has turned the curse into a blessing. You see, in that case now in Genesis 14, it's no longer the curse. That's behind. Now, it's the blessing. And the Lord thy God has turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord thy God loveth thee. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee so much that Thou art heavenly, the Most High God, none like Thee, none beside Thee, glorious in holiness. It's beyond our imaginations that You would even deal with us. What is man that Thou art mindful of him, the God who places the heavens with His fingers? But not only mindful, You are mindful of our lost estate and so mindful that You would give Your only Son, the Most High, for the Most Low, who would humble Himself, become obedient unto death, the death that we deserved, even the death, the wretched death of the cross. And therefore, it's no wonder that God hath highly exalted Him and given this same El Elyon a name, a name which is obviously above every name, That at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We love to pray in His blessed name and we do so now in Jesus' name. Amen.